Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an excerpt from the Albany Common Council meeting from October 16th by Moses Nagel. Then, Elizabeth Press reports on 50A, the New York State law that required that required the concealment of police disciplinary records was overturned in, to, in 2020, and the work to extract records. Later on, we'll bring you a piece about birth justice with an interview with an interview with midwife Michelle Doyle by Catherine Rafferty from our archives. After that, we have a live interview with Wildwood, who is performing who is performing at Conkling Hall on October 29th. Finally. We'll end with an artist profile from the upcoming Shifting Centers exhibition at IMPAC. But first, here are the headlines. A new book has found references to a newspaper which documents Albany's involvement with the Underground Railroad for um, enslaved people dating back to 1842, earlier than previously documented. Motorists should be extra careful to avoid deer and moose over the next three months until the end of November. More than 40% of crashes with these animals occurred during this time period as they, search for, as they search for mates during their breeding season. Schenectady County is discussing whether to financially support the construction of an ice rink and events arena at Mohawk Harbor. The project, which has already secured $10, $10 million in state funding, would be home to Union College's hockey team. The, Metropo- the Metroplex Development Authority was given the power this week to carry out a state-required environmental review of the planned area. ShopRite has announced plans to close five grocery stores on December 9th in Albany, North Greenbush, Colony, Niskiuna, Niskiuna, and Slingerlands. About 500 union employees are expected to lose their jobs. It is possible that the company will sell its stores in the capital region to another supermarket chain. Schenectady residents participated Thursday in the annual Take Back the Night March hosted by the YWCA Northeastern to support survivors and take a stance against domestic violence during the Domestic Violence Awareness Month. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you could contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. The Albany Common Council held their regular meeting on October 16th, after large numbers of residents have come to speak against laws and resolutions that they claim target the homeless for several consecutive meetings, the council took up a bill to change the loitering laws. This excerpt from the meeting features co- uh, council members debating the voting of the bill after hearing overwhelming opposition from the public uh, attending recent meetings. Thank you, Mr. President. I notice on this 5-21-23, and ask for his passage on the roll call thereon. Thank you. Can the clerk please read the ordinance? An ordinance amending Article I, loitering disturbances defacing property of Chapter 255, Peace and Good Order, of the Code of the City of Albany in relation to clarifying the standards and modifying enforcement guidelines for loitering. 
You know, the purpose of this legislation is to permit enforcement of Albany's loitering laws. Uh, when there is someone that want to give a sworn statement or recorded evidence, or if a police officer also see a suspected crime taking place that has been violated. Uh, we have seen a rise in crimes in our city that has left uh, citizens feeling less safe more now than ever. Loitering individuals can be harmful to families, to businesses, and to those who want to visit our beautiful parks. Deterring prospects from customers, particularly when these individuals are engaging in other criminal behaviors. The current law and the laws requires an officer to personally observe the commission of a crime or impermissible act. This leaves the police unable to protect our residents, our businesses, and those, our visitors. For instance, the loitering individual is no longer performing the legal act when the officer arrives. This ordinance will empower the police to better protect our residents and restore faith in the police since they would be better able to enforce our laws. So we sat in here a couple of weeks ago and we heard the mayor come in here and say arrests aren't the answer. And um, one of the problems that I have when I think about this, um, this resolution, um, we already have a loitering um, bill on the books. And all you hear from this administration and APD is about policing. I think that what we ask should be that the police are allowed to address these same issues that we're talking about. And addressing it doesn't necessarily mean an arrest. I can't um, support this because it's not addressing the issue that we're dealing with in our community. The issue that we're dealing with in our community is a lack of policing. We don't see the police in our community unless it's a shooting. And um, loitering, nobody should have a right to gather in front of your house. You shouldn't need a video. You shouldn't, that should be addressed. It's people who have problems with um, people congregating in front of their house every day because in these same areas, it's a high number of um, gun violence. I'm not gonna be supporting this ordinance tonight because we already have this on the books and it should be enforced. It was been forced all my life and I'm not gonna let people who didn't grow up in Albany come here and tell me that um, we can't do what, what um, needs to be done. Mayor and Mr. Adams. Thank you, Mr. President. An anti-loitering law already exists in the city, but this ordinance seeks to expand it. Loitering as a concept is existing in a certain place for a period of time, and we know this law will be used to punish poor and homeless people and attempt to remove them from public view. Ticketing someone who can't afford to pay it is not gonna solve homelessness. We can't ticket our way out of poverty. I oppose and encourage my colleagues to do the same. Mr. Adams? Again, this legislation seeks to try to assist individuals who are having issues with getting attention from the um, police department in regards to loitering. While we do have that on the books, it's not being enforced, which is the bigger issue. Um, it's unfortunate that tonight and recently, this legislation has been tied into a anti-homeless campaign 
because uh, as someone who's worked in the homeless services for almost a decade, um, working in the streets with individuals here in the city of Albany, knowing most of them by name, <clears throat> I find that this legislation, its true purpose or intent is hopefully to address the concerns that we've heard over the last few months in regards to individuals being concerned about groups congregating in front of their homes, in front of their cars, preventing them going inside their homes, intimidating at 2 a.m., blasting music on the street while neighbors are trying to sleep and calling for help and not getting an answer. The approach to addressing the actual homeless part or the unhoused situation is something that the city has very much been involved in, or at least people here in this council chambers have been. We've been working to address those issues that advocates have come in here for weeks now asking for us to support. We're supporting affordable housing. We're supporting safe sites. These things are already being done. But with this legislation right now here today, its goal is to help those people right now who are facing uncomfortability, fear, where if late at night you're walking down Lark Street, there's women who are writing and calling the police of being followed. Mr. Ballerin and then Mr. Hoey. Thank you, Mr. President. This is a difficult issue, let me be honest. It's a difficult issue because there's a lot of, you know, different components to it. Uh, but I think what we need to be focused on is, again, I always like to see how is this going to affect individuals on the ground. Um, and on the ground, I am concerned for our neighbors. I am concerned for our neighbors in many of our vulnerable neighborhoods. Where we are seeing more and more decay and more and more pain is in our vulnerable neighborhoods. Now, I represent Central Avenue, and I've done several walks with the police, with DGS, with code enforcement, uh, and other agencies on Central Avenue. And it's really clear the pain that that neighborhood is going through. These are the neighbors to work multiple jobs to be able to keep a roof over their head. When I am looking at the pain that my neighbors have to deal with, I can't be blind to it. I can't. This bill, we added two things, and we talked about this in the meeting. We made it public urination, which is already on the books in a different section. We put it here in loitering. That's one thing. And then the other is, the way the law was originally written was a policeman had to witness it. So the laundromat up by, in my ward, where the guy came in, took all his clothes off, with women and children there, washing his clothes, by the time the police came, he was dressed and gone. But it was on video, and they couldn't use it. This law will fix that. You know, I wasn't born in Albany. But damn it, my son is, okay? I am so tired of people, I'm born and bred in Albany. I was born in New York State. I pay New York State taxes. I own four pieces of property in this city. I invest in this city because I love this city. But do you know what it feels like when you have colleagues say, well, you're, you're, not from, you're from the outside. 
No. This is my city. I was elected. I represent 7,500 people from the 15th Ward. For six years, I've been demanding to get sidewalks. I see everybody else in the city getting stuff. Just in closing, um, you know, public can say what they want, and they have that right. But I wish we'd stick to the, the law. This law is already under books, and the only thing that changed, this has nothing to do with homeless people, has nothing to do with homeless people. This has to do with if someone witnesses a loitering act, it allows the police officer now to do something. Before it had to be witnessed by a police officer. When we know we have crimes and things that happen that doesn't have to be witnessed by a police officer for a citizen to report it in debt, and that, make, that allows the police officer to do their job. That's the only thing this, this is about. It's allowing individuals, if they see loitering happen, happening, they can report it and the cops and the police department can do something about it. That's it. So with that being said, can a clerk please call the roll? Adams. Yes. Anani. Yes. Ballerin. Yes. Clark. Yes. Farrell. No. Flynn. Yes. Frederick. Yes. Hoey. Yes. Johnson. No. Keegan. Yes. Love. Romero? No. Zamer? Yes. 11 in the affirmative. Ordinance passes. That was, an, that was an Albany Common Council meeting from October 16th, edited by Moses Nagel. Next, Elizabeth E.P. Press brings us an update on efforts of the NYCLU from the M NYCLU, which has been working to extract records from different municipalities and the state police. Today, we have Bobby Hodgson back on the Hudson Mohawk magazine to talk about an update with some wins that the NYCLU has had related to 50A, one related to the Troy PD and another related to the New York State Police. Bobby, welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Thanks so much for having me back. And maybe we'll just start with the bigger picture here, the state police. You have filed new lawsuit against the state police for unlawfully hiding officer names in misconduct records. Now, you had recently gotten a whole bunch of the misconduct records. Can you explain what has transpired? The story is a little a little long, and it goes back to the repeal of, of Section 50A in 2020, which sort of removed for the first time the, the veil of secrecy over police misconduct records in New York State. So way back then, we had filed a freedom of information law request with the New York State Police, seeking a bunch of different types of records associated with the state police's disciplinary practices, investigations, what happens when a misconduct complaint is filed. Um, and you know, unfortunately, we were forced to sue them um, because they were sort of withholding as a broad matter all of these underlying disciplinary files um, from the years 2000 to 2020. So that, that's a lawsuit that we filed a few years ago, and we did win a, a significant victory in court uh, in the Albany County Supreme Court, where a judge ordered the New York State Police to begin turning over those disciplinary files. In the meantime, we had also gotten our hands on a database, so a much higher level look at 
thousands and thousands of misconduct investigation records from that same period of time, 2000 to 2020, uh, for the New York State Police. And it did give us some really important information that raised a lot of concerns and that we were able to process into a, a report that we made public on our website. Folks should check it out. Just revealing basic information about how many investigation or complaints went unsubstantiated versus substantiated, what types of discipline were imposed. Um, you know, we unfortunately found that for the vast majority of instances where the New York State Police found that an officer had, you know, done something wrong, the officer mostly received just sort of a slap on the wrist, uh, a, a type of discipline that didn't really do much. But one thing that was unfortunately kept from us and kept from the public was officer names. They had sort of as a blanket matter redacted and withheld every New York State Police officer's name from this database that was associated with any complaint where the state police did not impose discipline. So the vast majority of these records have basic information about what the complaint was about and what happened, but they don't tell us who the officers were. And that really hinders our ability and the public's ability to do sort of systemic analysis of this data, which was kind of the whole point of the repeal of 50A to say, well, okay, what's happening across this whole system? Are there officers here who have 60 unsubstantiated complaint records? Or, you know, does this particular officer have one or two? And that's really important information for the public to understand, you know, what happens when they file a complaint or when someone brings forth an allegation that the New York State Police acted in a way that was problematic or unlawful. And to date, you know, this is still secret information. So we brought a new lawsuit um, to try and force the New York State Police to, to remove those redactions, to give us a full database that provides the public with a fuller picture of, you know, what's going on in the New York State Police's accountability system. Bobby, thank you for that overview. Now, obviously, these lawsuits take some time. What is the scope of when you uh, expect to be in court on this? You know, right now, it's scheduled to happen over the next couple weeks and months. And we are hopeful that because, you know, we already have an ongoing lawsuit against the New York State Police where we did win that initial order, because this case is related to that one, we're hopeful that, you know, this case will move forward at a faster clip and, you know, will be recognized as sort of presenting very similar issues. So we don't yet have a specific date for a hearing or when we'll be showing up in court, but we do hope that it'll happen soon and that we could get a, a decision and hopefully, you know, some information and documents to the public on a faster schedule. Of course, you know, we don't fully have control over that. And the court will move uh, at the speed it moves. And the New York State Police can always sort of seek to delay things or appeal things as they have done in the past. Now, Bobby, the NYCLU has also uh, had some news related to what might be considered a win here in Troy related to 50A with the Troy police. Um, you had initially won uh, in court related to releasing uh, disciplinary records, but then Troy decided to appeal this. Can you discuss what has transpired here and uh, what it means that the city of Troy has agreed to withdraw its appeal and turn over the disciplinary records? Absolutely. I, th this was, as you said, this was a great win. Uh, again, <laughs> we were forced to sue uh, 
the Troy Police Department for a similar withholding uh, where they were refusing to turn over all of their disciplinary records that were associated with complaints where they hadn't imposed discipline. So all of these unsubstantiated, unfounded, abandoned, open complaints um, were something that they had categorically withheld from the public. Um, and we got a wonderful ruling from uh, the court in that case back in February of 2023, ordering Troy to start turning them over. Um, Troy sort of put a pause on that by filing an appeal, which would have meant that the entire case would have gone up to the appellate division of New York State Courts um, and could have dragged on for quite some time. And thankfully and happily, uh, we were just able to announce last week that instead of pursuing their appeal, they've agreed to drop it and will, in fact, be turning over the records they were ordered to turn over back in February. And they'll do it starting this month and on a rolling basis for the next few months until all of those records are turned over. Um, and we will, of course, be be then making those public. So the the community in Troy can see, again, what police accountability has looked like in the past several decades in their community. And I assume, Bobby, those will appear on your website the way you've done with other cities that you were able to obtain this information for? Absolutely. Our, our you know, goal is always to make this information public so that folks in the community can, can be using it uh, discussing it and having informed conversations about what their police department is doing in real time. So we, we will have it up on our website. We may be able to do some analysis of it, but we haven't seen it yet. So we don't really know. I am curious, Bobby, do you know why the city of Troy changed their tactic on this one? You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate. I think, you know, number one, while we have been forced to bring a lot of lawsuits across the state, you know, for context, we've now sued over a dozen, you know, police departments. So Troy and the New York State Police are not alone here in trying to, to withhold this information and maintain a, a veil of secrecy over police misconduct records. But at the same time, I, I'm hopeful that they saw the writing on the wall and that as these cases have moved through the higher courts of New York State, it's been really clear that these courts have uniformly said, absolutely not, you cannot be withholding these records, police departments, in the way that you're doing. So part of me is, is hopeful that perhaps these departments are starting to see the writing on the wall as the, the court decisions get more and more numerous. Um, at the same time, we, we also won an order back in February, along with the record. Records, Troy was instructed to pay attorney's fees um, because the court found that they had not taken reasonable positions in their withholdings. And we, in the interest of getting these documents out uh, and public, were willing to forego those fees in exchange for ending this case and getting the documents you know, as soon as possible. So I, I suspect that had something to do with it as well. Now, uh, Bobby, as we uh, wrap up this interview here, what should our audience know about your work with 50A and its significance? Or is there uh, another city within New York that is uh, their data might be coming online uh, soon as well? Yeah, watch this space. I think there, there are a lot. We, we, we just released, you know, a, a sort of deep dive of the higher level New York State Police. We have other cities have, have turned over, you know, tens of thousands of records across the state that we are promptly processing and, and hoping to make public soon. I can't tell you which one's coming next, but I can tell you that we've, you know, we've received thousands of records from Buffalo, for example, and hope to make those public very soon. Um, and that there are other uh, jurisdictions around the state that will continue to roll out as we get them. And in the meantime, I think keep an eye out on our website. And if you're interested in, in what's happening in terms of police accountability in your city or town, 
feel free to reach out to us uh, if you have any questions at all. Bobby Hodgson, Supervising Attorney for the NYCLU. Thank you for joining us again for this update on 50A. Of course. Thanks for having me. Again, that website is nyclu.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilhecki. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. And finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The next piece is from our Hudson Mohawk Magazine archives. So come with us on a little trip back in time as we bring you a 2020 interview from, Kath- from Catherine Rafferty, who talked with, Ma- who talked with Michelle Doyle about local birthrights. Welcome to the Birth Justice Podcast, where we interview birth workers, birthing people, and activists around the topic of equity and respect in childbearing and reproductive care. I'm Catherine Rafferty. Today, we're joined by Michelle Doyle, certified nurse midwife from Troy, New York, to talk about local birth justice. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good. Uh, So I wanted to start with how you got started with local care midwifery, which is your private practice. I um, moved to Troy, New York in 1999 after graduating from midwifery school and was offered a job here um, with privileges at Samaritan Hospital. And my love, both personally and professionally, um, was midwifery, but specifically home birth. And I was brought here for a, a hospital-based job and looked to find my home birth cronies. They weren't around. Um, finally did find them. And 10 years after being in the hospital was finally, um, the time was right and I was brave enough to start a home birth practice. So when you first arrived though, there weren't many people practicing home birth in the capital region? Not, there were, there were people that were practicing home birth, but nobody that was a legal licensed practitioner. Um, actually, I was, um, when I asked, you know, who are the home birth midwives, how can I find them? I was told midwifery, a home birth was illegal in the state of New York, which was false then, it's still false now. I was told there was nobody doing it, which was false then and false then now. And when I persisted in my questions, I was told that if I went to the co-op and hinted around, maybe somebody would give me a name. It was so kind of underground at that point in 1999 that that's how I was told to meet home birth midwives. Wow. So do you think that that attitude about home birth still exists or has it gotten better? I think it's both. The attitude still exists that it's illegal, that it's underground, um, that somehow it's sub-quality healthcare um, or not even healthcare, and that it's much more common. And there are people now, I started my practice of local care midwifery in 2009. Um, After that, uh, almost a half a dozen practices, legal 
practices opened up. I think we're down to about three or four in the capital district right now, but it's um, really thriving. You know, it's you can just go on Google and type in home birth capital district and all kinds of things pop up. Um, it's, you know, common talk on Facebook now. And so it's, it's both still considered to be illegal by some people and absolutely just kind of commonplace for other groups. Yeah. Where do you think that those misconceptions come from? Well, around the, the country in general, planned home birth is about one to three percent of the population is their choice to have a planned home birth. So it's the outlier. And whenever you have a dominant product, hospital birth, for example, and an outlier, there's usually some gross misconceptions about the the one percent. Right. Yeah. Um, why do you think it's important that women have access to that option of a planned home birth or planned out of hospital birth? You know, we're talking about planned birth. Um, the three places that are generally recognized are hospital, birth center, and home. And to have access to quality care for each of those three places um, is important for parental for um, patient choice, client choice, to take one away or to take two of them away and say, you have to deliver in the hospital, in my mind, is just as wrong as to say to someone, oh, you're normal, healthy, and term, so you have to have your baby at home because that is the safer place for you to have it. That could be said to some people in some countries. What is said to some people in some countries is you have to have your baby at home because you cannot get to a hospital. I also think that is wrong to have, you know, access to all three um, places with good quality and licensed professionals with access to medications and the, um, the rest of the medical system as needed in my mind is only makes sense. Yeah. Um... Do you feel like in the capital region that there is an accessibility to those different options? Uh, I do feel in the capital region there is opportunity for women to access, access those options, not birth centers. We do not have a birth center in the capital region. Yes, we have something called Burdette Birth Center. It's labeled a birth center. That's a name only. It is not a freestanding birth center. Um, so there, our closest freestanding birth center is in Brooklyn or New Haven. I guess it depends on where you are in the capital district, which one's closer to you, but either New Haven, Connecticut, or Brooklyn. In New York State right now are only birth centers. We've got a couple that are hopefully opening soon are in Brooklyn, there's one that's kind of a temporary one for COVID in Manhattan, and there's one in um, Buffalo. Uh, one that I think is opening quite soon in Ithaca, but nothing in the Capital District. Yeah, do you see that uh, happening anytime in the future with like the high demand that we're seeing for home births these days? 
I'd love to say yes, but I don't know of anyone who's plotting and and planning a birth center in the capital district and being from initial thought through the entire process to opening your doors and seeing clients is generally, you know, like a two year kind of process. I, I don't see it happening in the capital district anytime soon. I'd love for it to, that would be great, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. Um, what, did you have any challenges when you were starting your own independent practice? Um, actually, it was really pretty smooth sailing. Um, I'd been strongly discouraged. I'd been told when I opened my practice, uh, midwives still had to work um, because of state guidelines under um, we had to literally have a signature of a doc on a document um, to be able to practice legally. And if we didn't have that signature or if we had a signature and that particular doctor died, we no longer could legally practice. So um, a signed practice agreement was required for any kind of midwifery care by the midwife. And when I opened my practice, um, I actually asked and received, you know, two docs were said they were quite willing to sign my practice agreement. So I'd been told when I was asking other midwives and talking to them about the p potential of starting a home birth practice, I was told it could never happen. No doc would ever sign that agreement. And actually that was not the case for me. Um, in New York state, we've since, um, updated the law so a practice agreement is no longer necessary for midwives to practice and we are considered whether we're practicing uh, attending births in home hospital or birth centers a practice agreement is no longer needed for us so that's a great improvement what do you feel that new york could do better to help women get access to out-of-hospital care in terms of opening up any barriers to uh, creating birth centers or things like that? Well, I think that it would be great if New York State um, Health Department would put forward a movement um, for all three places of birth. Now, if they aren't willing to um, go forward with supporting planned home birth, at least community supporting community birth in terms of really letting people know that birth centers are an option, putting um, time and energy into getting those established. It would be wonderful, in my opinion, and the opinions of others that I hear from, to have a birth center in the Capital District, um, to have one up in probably two in the North Country, one near the Canadian border, one a little farther, farther down, say between Plattsburgh and Queensbury. In south of us, between Albany and um, North Kingston, we have no hospitals providing um, birth center birth care right now. Columbia County no longer does. So that's another kind of desert for OB care. New York State has several of these deserts, which having a prenatal care center and a birth center could really fill 
a huge need for, for women. I'd love to see that supported. Well, it was really great talking to you, Michelle. Thank you, Catherine. It was great talking to you. Thanks for asking. And thanks for starting a podcast about birth justice. How great. That's a series from 2020 from uh, Catherine Rafferty on birth justice. And I'm actually looking out at uh, Michelle Doyle, who's here. This is recorded on Friday night ahead of the showing of Into Loving Hands, the, the film from uh, Victoria Cressy. And um, so this conversation about birth justice continues and the Bird at Birth Center. And you can find that at our website, mediasanctuary.org. The Wildwoods are a folk slash Americana trio, which will, which will be performing at Conkling Hall on October 29th. We are excited to get to know a little bit more about them ahead of the performance as they join us in the studio now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hey. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello, so good to hear from you. Uh, hey, why don't, great to be on here. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and the music you make? Yeah, hey, we're the Wildwoods. Um, we're a, we're a folk Americana group from Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, we're we're a trio. You know, um, most of our music focuses mainly on um, you know in, intricate harmonies, and um, we we tour around the country uh, quite a bit, playing music that that we love, and uh, we just like to like to have have fun with people at at concerts. That's that's what we love love to do, I guess. And could each of you say hello with your name so we know which face or which voice goes to which name? Yeah, hey, this is uh, Noah Ghost is my name. This is Andy Vagalos. And I'm Chloe Ghost. This is so exciting. So uh, you give us a little description, but could you like describe the sound? Take us to like, what is it like to be in the audience of a performance of yours? Gosh, you know... Um, we're, you know, we, we play mainly original music, and so uh, at our shows we like to, you know, get the crowd involved by, by telling stories. A lot of our songs have have um, stories behind them, and, you know, we like to, I guess, I don't know, make, make, people, make people laugh and just make sure everybody has a, has a good time. And, uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of our music um, sounds very serious, and it's very, I don't know, delicate and soft. Like Noah said, very harmony-based, but a lot of the stories that the songs were inspired by are kind of funny and just silly stories. So we like to add them in because it's a little, it adds a little bit more lightheartedness to the set, I guess. In doing a little bit of prep for this interview, and you just confirmed it a little bit ago, you guys are out of Nebraska. Um, can you describe to our New Yorkers listening what that sound is like coming out of Nebraska and what makes that sound so special? Um, gosh, let's, let's see, you know, um, we've, we've, even though we don't purposefully write music like this, we've had a lot of people outside of, I guess, the Midwest describe our music as very Midwest folk. I'm not completely certain what that means, but you know, we were a we're a acoustic guitar, uh, violin, upright bass trio, and you know our music is is it's not the most uh, complex music. You know everything's everything's fairly fairly simple, and we just you know I guess like to have a have a sound that's uh, you know 
gosh, I'm trying to trying to find the words for it. Um, it is like, it is hard to describe a sound, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a good yeah, challenge. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't think about that a ton. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. I don't know if it's just because we're a folk trio, but a lot of people compare us to like Peter Paul and Mary, and uh, some somebody once said that our harmonies sound like they're from the Depression era. I, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> but Nebraska, you know, is the. Um, you know, of course, we've we've been to New York many a handful of times, and uh, a lot of a lot of the Northeast. We love coming up to the Northeast, but uh, but things feel a little bit more faster paced, I guess, and and you know things are kind of closer together, I guess, if that if that makes sense. And uh, you know, yeah, like I I think that our music you could. You could like drive out to a country road and just like imagine like like the prairie landscape and the sunset and just like the Midwest feel, I guess, is kind of what our music encapsulates a little bit. So coming to your concert, it slows someone down to really be present and you're also getting stories that make you laugh in between. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And once again, you talked a little bit about you've been to New York a handful of times. What is unique about performing in New York, and what do you like about it the most? Oh gosh, I mean, New York's beautiful. New York State is is I'd say one of the most beautiful states that we've we've ever been to and ever played in. Um, and I don't know, there's there's just something about the the crowds that we've we've played in in, in New York that uh, you know people seem to be just very attentive. And very, um, you know, they they come for for the music. You know, of course, people like to go out and socialize, but it seems like a lot of the crowd there they they come there for for the music, and they they just want to, uh, um, you know, I guess show appreciation for for original music and, and for musicians. So so we've always just had a a great experience and have made made lots of great friends um, playing throughout different towns in New York. I'm touched. Thank you. <laughs> And you have pulled to the side of the road as you're driving. So are you in the <laughs> midst of a tour? And how, where is we, this taking you? We are, yes. I, I'm, I'm sorry if my, my, uh, my, our answers seem a little slow. We've, we've been in the car for, for 11 hours so Whew. far. Yeah, we're, um, we're currently wow. driving to um, Greenville, South Carolina. We have a show there tomorrow. And our tour started... Um, what at the beginning or at the end of September and so we we've been gone from home for a little while we went back for a few days just to kind of regather and recoup but now we're just on the last stretch of our fall tour yeah, which will end um on October 29th which will kind of take us through the the Carolinas and then up into um, Ohio and Pennsylvania and then finally up into into New York after that so you said the uh, performance at Conkling Hall is your very last performance on this tour? It yeah. is, yes. It is the the grand finale. Oh, a lot of pressure there. Yes, <laughs> for last, New York. So what can listeners yeah. expect from this upcoming performance? What should they know about, um, like, yeah. Why should, why should they come on their... Uh, to, to see you over in Conkling, which I haven't been to the space, but uh, we've heard that it's a great space. You know, if, uh, yeah, from, from what we've heard, the acoustics of, of the Conkling Hall um, are, are just, you know, real nice, real 
real real beautiful sound inside of there and you know um i guess people can if if people love love folk music if they like hearing um original music from from artists that they from an artist that they might not know or might know know just a little bit um you know i think people can come and and just expect to have a nice uh Nice, relaxing (laughs) evening, you know, and hopefully take away um, from it, you know. Well, the fun thing about it is we never have a a set set list. We just kind of go up there and and kind of decide. And then as far as the crowd interaction goes, it's very dependent on that crowd that particular night. So Mm. we honestly get up on stage and can't really tell you what's about to happen. And it always just kind of becomes like an individual moment with each each crowd each audience and uh so uh, it'll be fun to see what the energy is like that night you bring up a really important point like the audience is also part of the outcome if if the audience isn't bringing some energy then it's very difficult to expect that a band really carries it all on their own uh have is it generally a good showing of audience or have you had some difficult moments on stage? Normally it's pretty good. We we have had, you know, a, a, there was one show last month where I think there was, there was six people, but on that same tour, we, we sold out. I forget how, how many seats there were in this, in this, in this listening room, but we completely sold out the place or in the, you know, just kind of give or take depending on where you go and, where you're at. Yeah, but even though there were only six people at that one show, that was still a really good crowd. They were very interactive, and it felt like we were just like having a private little party, I guess. <laughs> and as we wrap up, I just want you to, I just want to make sure you guys get this out here. Just tell us when you're performing and where it is at and what type of music you'll be playing. Yep, so we're performing at Conkling Hall in Ren, Rensselaerville, New York. On October 29th, the show will start at 6 p.m. and we'll be playing folk music. And where can listeners get more information? Do you have a website, social media? Yeah, we have a website. It's thewildwoodsband.com. And also we have social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. Yeah, we post a lot of of videos of us singing on all of our social media platforms. So... uh, Go check it out, and if you like what you hear, we'll we'll see you there. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Have a great trip. Thank you. you. And for our last segment, we wrap it up with another artist exhibiting their work as part of the Shifting Center exhibition coming to MPAC on November 3rd. Visual artist Clarissa Tosin and composer Michel Agnes Magalais have created a new work for Shifting Center, the exhibition coming to MPAC, that builds off the audio from Tosin's existing film Before the Volcanoes Sing. Their work will be a part of the exhibition coming on November 3rd to MPAC. Michel Agnes Magalais joins me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love first for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So I'm a composer, a musician, pianist, and um, uh, working on different kind of medias. 
as a composer, we today have like a bunch of options and resources and formats to explore. So I'm, I'm working composing basically for uh, musicians, for instruments, uh, traditional instruments, or sometimes also new uh, instruments and sometimes also computer uh, tools. And uh, in this time was for me was very special because it's a collaboration with a visual artist Larissa. For me, it's very exciting, and for me, it's um, something very special. And the two of you have been collaborating for quite some time. Could you take us a little bit through how the two of you have worked together and the evolution of your collaboration? I met Larissa in 2017 okay. uh, we were both um, fellows Radcliffe fellows at Harvard University and uh, during this year we spent uh, uh, sharing the same building <laughs> and working basically uh, she has a um, workspace like near mine <laughs> and my, my studio at uh, Radcliffe so we could share lots of process dynamics in the work and also we begin to discuss about uh, some subjects that uh, we were interested at that time and for that moment together um, we realized that um, we should collaborate <laughs> together it was an evidence and um, as uh, Clarissa has us all this work um, and all this research about indigenous people and culture and giving the, uh, the voice to, to their traditions. From this project, we just have the perfect occasion to, to collaborate and to do something together. And that time approaching music and sound. You mentioned indigenous instruments and your and Tosin's work. The current exhibition stems from research into Mayan flutes used by indigenous communities and later held in pre-Columbian museum collections in the United States and Guatemala. What went into this research and what were some of the things that you realized and discovered through this research? For me, it was a, a very particular uh, way to approach instruments because we didn't work with these instruments. Uh, you can imagine that uh, you cannot, we cannot approach old ancient instruments. These instruments are very precious and they are in, in museums. Yeah, it but, might, might damage um, them, right? Exactly. But um, uh, we worked with uh, Jared Katz. He did a research in acoustic and uh, he has... Um, a whole way to a method to uh, do copies uh, from 3D scanning and printing. So <laughs> some of these instruments, they were uh, replicated uh, using this method. This was not a traditional copy made by a luthier, but something uh, using like new technology. And for me, it was very exciting to, to work on this method. And after the production of this series of uh, replicas uh, of ocarinas and flutes, I worked with a flutist, 
uh, that um, also participate with us from the, the residents. I compose, um, we have like many different types of flutes. Uh, most of them have like animal shape, birds, monkeys. Each flute has a whole universe of tones, uh, scales, colors, uh, timbre, and uh, for that reason, it was uh, very important to compose to each flute something that correspond to, corresponds to the instrument. So this was more uh, my approach, is really to listen to each flute, to explore each flute, and to reconstruct the word of each one of these instruments. So you say the instruments had different so tones and sounds and colors. What did that do for your outlook on music as a composer and to understand the history of the Americas? Um, first of all, I think it's an experience um, that gives you the sense of something that's alive. More than understanding this culture from the point of view of books or reading text, as we usually do, the fact to experiment this, that thing um, and having this sensorial experience, it's, it's, uh, it's changed everything because um, some of the instruments uh, are ocarinas or bird ocarinas. Um, what they is are, that? Uh, like in form of bird, you know, and that um, yeah. and, uh, this kind of uh, instruments give us, give you, um, gave us a sense of space to, uh, like nourish our imagination in the sense to imagine this open nature of space. Uh, as they are very high to, you can kind of experience something, um, that, uh, remind us a specific kind of nature or landscapes or something like that. And I just want to uh, remark how you're beaming. You're really smiling as, as you're talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, because this is give us a real experience of the space. And, and, and uh, we try to be inspired by that. We also uh, record it at Impact in the concert hall in a way that we can have like a long time reverberation or to give this acoustic uh, ima image of um, a very, very open natural space. And um, it's kind of, it's something like that reminds us this point of connection between uh, our life on the earth and the life of the birds in a very, very high uh, space and landscape and you can feel that when you listen to the sounds just because if it's natural is part of of that thing so you've been in MPAC a few times so you have worked you've been there with the complex sounds of the building what do you plan for your installation and utilization of this particular sound of the building yeah, the experience of, uh, at MPAC was very complex because um, at the beginning, uh, as I described before, it was something uh, related to uh, make these instrument sounds 
and trying to reproduce acoustically uh, good conditions to to make it playable, having this rich uh, reverb and resonance. And at the second time, uh, in the composition experience and mixing experience, um, we are producing this space uh, using this um, wave field synthesis platform that uh, give us a um, kind of very realistic uh, spatial experience of the sound, giving us, for example, the feeling that the flutist is moving around us and allow us um, at the same time to move with them. So in a second time, all the, the work was uh, were composition work, uh, narrative work, narrative sound work, and also an specialization, a, a building kind of poetics of the sound in, in the space. We're so looking forward to experiencing your work at the Shifting Center exhibition at MPAC. Um, Michelle Agnes Magalais, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure for me. <laughs> You can find our other artist profiles on our website, www.mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is my favorite engineer, Sina. And we thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Thanks to Moses Nagel, Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, and yours truly, Jacob Boston. This program covers stories of social and, and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We talked a lot today. Now we want you to join the conversation. You can do this by finding us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or sending us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in Wednesdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. Tune in weekdays, I'm sorry, at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening, and until next time. (laughs) 